The Business of Biotech is produced by Life Science Connect and its community of learning, solving, and sourcing resources for biopharma decision makers. If you're working on biologics process development and manufacturing challenges, you need to swing by bioprocessonline.com. If you're trying to stay ahead of the cell or gene therapy curve, visit cellandgene.com. When it's time to map out your clinical course, let clinicalleader.com help. And if optimizing outsourcing decisions is what you're after, check out outsourcepharma.com. We're Life Science Connect, and we're here to help. When my buddy Alan Shaw says, hey, there's someone you should have on your show, he gets my attention because he's usually right about this business of biotech stuff. When he says this guy turns stuff he touches into gold, I'll admit I get a little skeptical. But then again, Alan's never given me a bum steer. I'm Matt Piller. This is the Business of Biotech, and I'm pretty sure I've already made today's guest a little uncomfortable, but Nuhad Husseini deserves that high praise. As SVP and Head of Business Development and Corporate Strategy at Regeneron, he's established and orchestrated a pretty solid record of winning strategic collaborations and licensing deals. On today's episode, we're going to get to know Nuhad, and we're going to learn as much as we can about strategic partnership success and biopharma. Nuhad, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Nothing like putting you on a pedestal from the outset, right? Well, yeah, turning things into gold, that's about as high a bar as you can strive for, I guess. <laughs> I'm still trying to do that, but uh, <laughs> well, Alan, like I said, I'm capable of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, Alan speaks super highly of you, uh, and I trust his word. Um, so I want to I begin by getting to know your, your pedigree, your background a little bit, uh, and sort of the, the mix that set you up for the, the position you're in today and the work that you're doing. Um, and if and if I go back to 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 college, uh, your college years, you graduated from Princeton with a BA in molecular biology, uh, and then made the trans transition into investment banking and equity research at Robertson Stevens and Morgan Stanley. Um, so whenever I see that sort of transition, you know, from like uh, a sciency sort of uh, undergrad or, or academia into investment banking or or equities, it, it makes me curious about sort of where your head was at during that time, uh, what your strategic sort of approach was? Well, I guess uh, I wish I was more strategic back in those days. That that definitely, there was no strategy involved here. It was, uh, you know, when I was whatever, 18 or so, kind of starting my world in molecular biology, I didn't really know anything else. You know, I thought I was going to grow up to be a scientist. That was just kind of what I did and what I liked doing. And I was, you know, planning to go to a PhD program or maybe an MD PhD or something like this. And it was, I think, in my junior year, um, we had to spend a year in the lab, really kind of on a, getting our hands ready with a full on, you know, thesis project that eventually we'd try to publish. And it was like a legitimate, um, you know, research endeavor partnering with one of the faculty members in at the university. And that was a disaster <laughs> on many different levels. Um, one, I learned that I just really wasn't very good at the practice of science as much as I loved it. And I actually didn't really enjoy the laboratory experience, you know, just in terms of the individual nature, at least the way I kind of it wasn't very much of a team sport. You know, you went I would go into the lab and set up my experiments, wait a couple of days, cross my fingers, hope they worked. You know, usually they didn't. I'd have to repeat them. Mm. And I found that process to be uh, a little demoralizing and not very you know, rewarding. So it was kind of an oh, crap kind of moment. Now, what am I going to do with myself that this isn't the path that I thought I was going to be on? 
And then I kind of figured out, okay, what am I going to do next? And a lot of my friends, a lot of my classmates um, had kind of run off to Wall Street, which was not atypical for kind of Ivy League undergrads to just go do that for a couple of years. And so I figured, what the hell, I'll I'll give that a try. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, Alan Shaw, one of his friends, a guy named Mark Simon, uh, who was a well-known person in uh, biopharma, one of the early, early bankers and researchers in the field back in the 90s. Um, Maybe you know Mark. Uh, He had hired me you know, and kind of took a chance on someone with literally no business experience, just as someone who was hungry and wanted to learn. So he, I was lucky enough to get that opportunity to kind of co-work with Mark and his team at Roberts and Stevens. And back in 2000, uh, when this all happened, you know, this, these were the days when biotech was kind of booming around the sequencing of the human genome. And it was just a really exciting time. Companies were raising lots of money and it was just a, it was a great time for me to kind of enter the field and just start, you know, drinking from the fire hose, as they say. Yeah. So that's kind of how I ended up there. That's almost great. Back. You made it, uh, you know, you, you made it through those labs further than I did when I was in my undergrad. I, I was, I, I think it was my freshman year. I was an undeclared, you know, undecided. And I, I was taking a, a class called anatomical physiology, a very, very basic sort of uh, anatomy class. And uh, there was a lab for that class. It, it was when they wheeled the cadaver in for that lab that I said, nope, nope, sciences are are, are not for me. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go that route. Um, do you find yourself and and especially like early on, like when, you know, when you when you got into the investment scene, did you find yourself leaning at all into your molecular biology background or 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 knowledge or like, did you find that advantageous having that background? Yeah, I, I mean, it has proven advantageous for sure. But I mean, uh, you know, early on in my career, you know, I was could not be more green, you know, in terms of just understanding business, finance, and even just the industry. I mean, you know, what you learn in the lab about how enzymes work and DNA and you know, biochemistry of amino acids, et cetera, you know, just that has no applicability to the world of clinical trials and the FDA and intellectual property and, you know, Medicare reimbursement dynamics and J codes, <laughs> all these things that, you know, drive stocks of publicly traded companies. And so that was, um, you know, a just crazy learning experience. You know, as I've gone through my career, for sure, you know, that foundation, I've kind of looked back on that and, you know, it gives me the vocabulary and the basic understanding of where I can kind of ask intelligent questions about mechanisms of action and areas of science and target biology. You know, it gives me the ability to ask better questions and understand the answers. I'm, I'm by no means an expert, but it's it's been a big advantage, I think, over the years. Yeah. When you when you added a, a Wharton MBA in, in 2004, uh, at that point, was there, I guess, a little more intentionality be, behind where where new had wanted to take his his career a little bit but not really i mean to be honest i mean i i was still at a crossroads of you know do i stay in you know financial services or investing right that was kind of i was at this moment i could go work at a hedge fund and i just thought that was like that was pretty exciting because you know you, you i'm sure you meet a lot of these folks i mean these are the kind of the smartest of the smart in terms of people that are in our industry just incredibly bright high energy people and i just was amazed by these people as a young professional and wanted to be part of that mm-hmm. um and so i thought maybe that was a path i might just continue down because that's kind of where i started but then there was a big part of me that wanted to be part of a mission driven more of a team you know building something building an organization and i wanted to at least have that experience and give that a shot 
um, you know, I grew up in, in the San Francisco Bay Area and, you know, as a kid, you know, even then I kind of knew of Genentech, you know, partly because some of my my friends, their parents worked at Genentech. It was a kind of a known entity, at least in my sphere. And I always thought of Genentech as like this, you know, amazing place, the pinnacle of really biotech, which it was in a lot of ways in the 90s and, and early 2000s. And so I kind of had that in my head, you know, when I went to Warden, I had this goal. I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to Genentech after Warden. That's the reason I'm signing up for Warden. <laughs> so let's see if that works out. And I actually applied for an internship that summer at Genentech and got denied. <laughs> and I oh. was devastated. And I was like, oh, my God, this whole reason I went to Warden to end up at Genentech, this may not happen. Uh, I ended up at Amgen over that summer and had a, had a good experience there. Uh, and fortunately, when I graduated, I just kind of said, I'm putting all my cards on the table. I'm applying to Genentech and only Genentech. Please give me an offer. Yeah. And fortunately, I did. And I did end up uh, out in, back in California um, after school. So that was really the only intentionality to it was to kind of you know pivot you know into industry and specifically at Genentech. Yeah. What did you want to like? What did at that point? What did you want to do at Genentech? What did you envision yourself doing when you set foot in there? You know, that's a good question. I didn't even know. You know, um, I because I was just ignorant to really what the roles and career paths even were in biopharma. I didn't. I didn't have. I wasn't one of these people that had a lot of mentors. You know, at, at a young age. You know, I didn't know people in industry. My family wasn't part of the industry. Nothing like that. So. I had no clue, you know, even what people did. You know, I didn't know what business development really was. I didn't know the different functions within finance. I didn't know really what the difference between marketing and market access and pipeline planning and portfolio planning and all these different functions. So part of my goal, you know, when I when I went in industry was just to expose myself um, to, you know, what is out there. And that's part of the career advice I give to a lot of now, you know, younger people entering the workforce is take a couple of years and just explore and figure out what you don't even know is there for you. So I was fortunate enough to be part of a rotational program that Genentech had set up um, that allowed me to kind of move through a bunch of these different functions. And through that experience, I think it, it quickly kind of realized that business development was really kind of the path I wanted to be on. Almost, you know, it was just that was one of the few places where a business person like me could be super close to the science and occasionally flex some scientific muscle. And, you know, which is what I really wanted. You know, when I was in marketing teams and with in finance teams, Sometimes I was feeling like, you know, I could be working at Pepsi and it wouldn't really be all that different, you know, whereas in business development, I'm sitting here back to what I kind of thought about and knew and enjoyed when I was in the equity research world, thinking about science and medicine and trials and data analysis. And, you know, that's really kind of got me jazzed up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and when you think about that stuff, you know, in in the context of a business development role, you think about it. I mean, I almost picture it, correct me if I'm wrong here, like tell me if this, this is way off base, but I almost picture it like from a biz dev perspective, when you're studying all those spaces, you're looking at all these different parts and pieces like like puzzle pieces to determine what might fit within the next steps at your company or the portfolio at your company. Like what, what's sort of the mindset there? Like, you know, you're you're uh, I guess the fact that you were jazzed about the opportunity to, to look at science and medicine and, and clinical trials. In those early days, what did you learn about, like, to what end? To to what end are you doing that? I mean, it sounds, I guess, a little cliche, but I mean, it, I think it was very real and it motivated me and motivated a lot of people was just this feeling of like, hey, you know, this technology you know, it's probably not going to work. But if it did, 
man, the impact of being able to cure this disease or the impact it's going to have on the world. And while I might play some small part in that, you know, and just that feeling, you know, even though it is a teensy tiny part of like actually seeing something come to the patients, it's still a role in doing something that like has this amazing impact on the world and a lasting impact. So like that emotional piece of it and that satisfaction, Mm -hmm. um, was like really got me excited, you know, just to be in a room and sitting here like, you know, if if we're going to cure cancer, right? It's like, it might happen, you know, in this room. And I'm part of that team, even if in a small way. And it just was that opportunity felt special. Yeah. You, uh, you developed this, uh, as, as I said, intentionality uh, to, to join Genentech. To, to go to Genentech, you you made that happen. You're at Genentech, and then in 2011, you uh, you you joined Regeneron. Was that the, tra- the transition? Did you go from Genentech to Regeneron in 2011, or was there something in between? Oh, that was it. Yeah, it was it. Yeah. So so why you you know, you wanted so badly to be at Genentech in, in your formative years? Why'd you leave? Well, it was not part of the plan. Believe me, it was. Um, you know, and also being in San Francisco, right? We were there. My wife and I had moved there. We just had our first two children or, or only two, but they were just born and um, it was home. And it's like, okay, I'm back in California. This is biotech hotspot. You know, I'm at the greatest company in biotech. Like, why would I ever leave? This is like mission accomplished in terms of my early you know, life goals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, but stuff happens, right? I mean, it's like, you know, opportunities come your way. And I guess the constellation of events that kind of came together I mean, maybe one of the big ones was the acquisition of Genentech by Roche. So, you know, when that happens, companies change, people that I really enjoyed working with leave, you know, culture changes. That's part, that was part of it. Part of it also was, you know, I had been doing the job for, you know, two or three years as a junior person, learning, learning, learning. And I was ready, you know, to kind of challenge myself, take that next step, be a bigger fish in a small pond, you know, that kind of thing. So I just felt kind of hungry to, do more in terms of my own personal role. Um, and then there was a personal connection I actually had at uh, at Regeneron. Um, a guy I used to work with on Wall Street at, at Morgan Stanley, a guy by the name of Michael Aberman. He had joined Regeneron about a year prior. Um, he had been a successful equity analyst and was one of the very first equity analysts to kind of leave Wall Street to go work for a company. It kind of started a trend. He was yeah. a trend. But Michael had, uh, I had known him and always had you know, tremendous respect for him. And when he reached out and said, hey, we're looking for someone, you know, if it had been someone other than Michael, I probably wouldn't have been so interested. But, you know, you know how things are in life. It's about people. And when Michael reached out, I was like, oh, OK, working for you. That's something I would seriously consider doing. And then the last thing, like I had known Regeneron well, you know, just from covering them as an analyst. I knew the company uh, from afar, at least. And then even within Genentech, there were a couple of interesting moments that kind of always put Regeneron back on my radar screen as like this force to be reckoned with and this potentially, you know, super exciting company to be part of. Uh, you know, I we were sitting in meetings talking about uh, Lucentis, the retina product uh, from Genentech. And I remember sitting in there and listening to the team and the team was like, you know, there's this little company called Regeneron with this VEGF trap thing. And we think we should be pretty worried about it because these guys invented a really good molecule and they're doing a good job with the development. So I just put it in my head. I'm like, oh, these Regeneron guys, you know, Genentech respects them. And then there was another moment where people were talking about, you know, oh, you know, Genentech wants to get into PCSK9. And oh, these Regeneron guys, you know, they're leading the way there. I'm like, oh, again, Regeneron again. Mm -hmm. And then this antibody technology, Genentech needs to up their game in antibody technology. You know what we should do? Let's call Regeneron because they got the 
oh, Regeneron again. So it was like in my head that these guys at Regeneron were really on to something big. And so that was exciting. Like, can I go to a small company that I thought was just on the verge of some, you know, exciting growth? Yeah. And and, and it was, and we're going to get into that next. But uh, before we do, you you mentioned something uh, just a minute ago about sort of this, this trend, uh, this this trend of the departure from Wall Street and and working in in biz dev for uh, a biopharma, um, tell me about that transition. Like what what I don't know. Just give us some highlights on sort of the differences and and sort of what that transition required and felt like. Because you because you're right. I mean we we see quite a bit of that. And I'm I'm just curious about like the work that you're doing now. Um, you know how that differs f- from your time on Wall Street and what uh, you lean into or you know, to take away from that Wall Street experience that serves you well today? I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it's like the exact same discipline, mm. right? Where, you know, you need to look at all these different factors, scientific, business, legal, macro, competitive landscape, synthesize that all together. In one case, it's an investment thesis, right? Do I think I want to invest in the stock and the equity of this company? And the other, it's an investment thesis. Do I want to invest in the product, in the drug? And so the analysis and the data you look at and the process you go through and the diligence and the modeling, like it's really the same discipline in a lot of ways. So that was very comfortable and I could lean on that. And so that gets you to like, you know, the decision point. From there, it really diverges a lot. I mean, because then you get into the transaction aspects of it and the deal-making aspects of it and the negotiation aspects of it. Um, which is a whole nother art, you know, that you need to learn and I needed to learn and I'm continuing to learn. I mean, that's one of the fun parts of the job is you never really master that aspect of deal making. And it's always a different deal, always a different set of counterparties, different issues come up. Um, but that is something that, you know, life in Wall Street cannot and does not, you know, prepare you for, you know, how to learn that art of the, you know, deal making and the transaction, you know, technical points. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you, all right, let me, let me stay there for a minute. Uh, when you look at the, the potential for a deal, we'll we'll use deal. I mean, I'm going to get to the question where I kind of want to learn your, your vernacular and I want to learn sort of like what you name the quivers or the, the arrows that is in your quiver. When you're looking at a deal, potential deal, do you like typically treat it sort of as a as a as a custom exploratory let's see where this ends up sort of sort of thing or do you have sort of structured approaches you know whether that's a you know a li- licensing deal or a, an acquisition or you know are, are, do you go into it with like sort of in, intentional um plans drawing from the tools that I don't know, <laughs> I'm using a lot of words here, but draw, drawing from the arrows in your quiver that have been, and you know, maybe tried and true and proven, or, or is it, is it truly sort of ad hoc? Let's see where this ends up and what, what makes the most sense. For me, it's, it's pretty, more, it's like, a pretty, pretty sloppy question, isn't it? No, no, I, I, know, I know what you're getting. I know what you're getting at. Um, at least I think I do. Um, for me, it's more, I would say, 80-20 of trying to leverage and utilize prior experience, knowledge, deal models and apply those um, versus the like truly let's just sit down and make it up as we go along. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would say that maybe is a non-traditional answer. I think most people in my seat would kind of say, oh, no, we do everything bespoke and from you know first principles. But 
I don't know. I mean, there really are certain deals. Again, it, it all it all starts with what are you trying to get out of this deal, right? What are they trying to get out of it? What are we trying to get out of it? And you can kind of know that, you know, pretty early on. And, you know, things fit patterns. And we know the type of deal, like if we're doing a deal to collaborate around, let's run a clinical trial that tests the combination of our PD-1 inhibitor with some novel agent that this company has, as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, we've done 10 of those types of deals. So when you know that's the deal, you, you kind of know what the issues are and how to make that deal successful. And, and you want to learn, you know, based on past experiences, like what worked in these prior models and how to optimize that. So yeah, I, that's kind of how I start is like, let me understand what we're trying to get at. And I have a solution for that. And then I try, you know, sometimes that is a, you know, a shortcoming of mine. I kind of get stuck in these mental traps of being a little bit too wedded to prior, you know, models. And I always try to step back and say, okay, you know, let's just let that go and let's try something new. Um, occasionally we've done deals that like are fairly unprecedented, you know, for the company or just, you know, generally speaking, the industry where we're kind of making things up as we go. Those are fun. You know, I enjoy doing those. It's not that I try to avoid that, but, um, that just is like a situation when we're really trying to achieve something that's kind of unusual, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. D- describe, uh, Regeneron when you, when you came on the scene for, I guess, from a business development perspective, when you came on scene in 2011, like what, what did you walk into? Well, um, I mean, I knew what I was walking into, uh, I guess. I think I did, um, which was a company that really didn't need to do any business development. <laughs> you know, so it was kind of a strange job to be taking, you know, taking up this head of business development type role where the company wasn't doing any business development. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, they had done a really one of a kind type of deal with Sanofi back, I think it was 2007 which essentially just fully financed the company and its R&D for the next decade, right? Which was highly unusual for a company at that stage. So there was no more deal-making that had to happen to keep the lights on, right? Which is what typically small biotechs are doing, selling asset here. You know, they didn't have to do that anymore. So they were kind of done, box checked. Then the other kind of deal was like, well, let's buy other people's stuff. Um, Regeneron didn't need to do that because Sanofi just gave them billions of dollars to basically turn the crank on the antibody discovery platform, this VelociSuite technology that Regeneron had invented. And so they were more than busy, you know, just trying to generate clinical candidates and there was no need to bring other stuff in. Um, so, so that was going on. That was just the business reality. And then there was also just more of a cultural reality, which was Regeneron had been around for 25 years. This was not some startup new company. And the leadership and many of the employees had been there from the early, early days. So there was this deeply, deeply ingrained culture of how things were done for 20 years. And yeah. for 20 years, you know, there wasn't a lot of external innovation as like a core part of the strategy. Um, so there, there was a big need to try to, you know, influence the hearts and minds and open people's eyes that, Hey guys, we're kind of at a stage now where, yeah, it didn't make sense over the last 25 years that, you know, that was perfectly appropriate to be laser focused on internal stuff. The company's evolving. We're getting ready to launch our first major commercial product in ILEA. We're growing in financial resources, capabilities, clinical resources, our regulatory expertise, you know, everything. Like we're big boys now, or we're trying to become big boys. You know, so we need to change our thinking. And so I kind of walked into that moment of the company. And that's kind of what I spent doing the first, you know, two or three years through a lot of just trial and error and, and exposing people to different companies and banging my head against the wall 
you know, just trying to get people to see and appreciate, you know, what is even out there, right? Because people weren't even really looking, you know? And so as, as people started to be getting more and more exposed to this, and we had a couple of small early wins, you know, it was kind of the experience like, oh, this is actually kind of interesting. I, I like this. I, I can see the benefit of doing more of this stuff. And it just kind of slowly, you know, snowballed slowly, uh, yeah. you know, over time until kind of where we are now. What does that motivation look like? I mean, you know, you, you bring up a really good point when you're a small biotech, um, you know, and the, the cash runways run, running short and you need you need some money, you know, you need uh, maybe, you know, maybe a partnership or uh, a licensing deal. Um, creates an opportunity to demonstrate some validation like there's there's very clear i think scenarios for for new small you know early clinical stage biotechs um to seek to seek partnership to sell asset whatever like it's a very you know it's often directive like we need to do this to do the next thing we want to do in a, in a company like regeneron when you walked in you know to your point like flush with cash uh commercial j- just about commercial stage right like things are going well, what is the motivation? Like, or what was the motivation at that point to, um, I guess, invest in, in, in business development and invest in a role like yours? Well, again, like, you know, what was unusual about the role and what attracted me to it, frankly, was the company was at the stage where it was doing transactions on the sell side still as a mm-hmm. small boss making company and, and also emerging to be on the buy side. So it was kind of both sides of the deal making table, which is pretty unusual and was like exciting for me as a, as a deal maker to want to be able to have that variety of different kind of things to think about and work on. So on the sell side of things, I mean, you know, at the time in the early days that I was there, you know, when Ilea was just getting launched, you know, there really was not, and you know, you, you sure people tell different versions of history, but my recollection was nobody was going to say ILEA was going to be a $10 billion product, right? Mm-hmm. If it was going to be a billion dollar product, we were going to jump up and down and give each other high fives as a huge success. So at that time, there was still this big notion of, you know what, let's make sure we don't bite off more than we can chew. Right. As a company, let's not overinvest in, you know, big trials for some of our pipeline. And so let's find partners to help us share that risk and share that burden. Because again, we just don't want to get too, you know, bullish about our future that we wake up and say, oh my God, we just overdid it. So that was part of the motivation to continue to be, you know, on the quote sell side and find partners for some of our products and, you know, bring in other, uh, sources of funds. On the buy side, you know, again, my motivation, and it wasn't the organization's motivation, it was kind of like we needed to bring people along to this kind of thinking. It was with a very long time horizon in mind, which and, and my kind of thinking at the time was, look, you know, Regeneron at that point in time, I think what you know most people would acknowledge was the world leader in antibody technology and capabilities. I mean, there were other people in the game, but it really had distinguished itself as you know, really proven the best quality antibodies, the fastest turnaround times, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And the thinking was, um, let's leverage that and turn that crank and turn that into the most value and most drugs that we possibly can, which was correct. But I think that, you know, one of the mistakes companies make and at risk is you get so focused on executing on kind of the here and now stuff, you kind of forget about investing in, well, what's going to be that thing in 10 years from now? Because the world catches up to you. That's just the nature of our industry. When you have a technology as successful as what, you know, Regeneron's Velocihum technology was, 
there's going to be people that come in and copycat and you know try to follow what you do and then inevitably there's you know it becomes commoditized mm-hmm. you know are we there today i don't know but we're getting close right and so that's just the, that's the nature of competition and technology it's unavoidable yeah. and so for me it was really like we need to not lose sight of that but we need to start positioning ourselves for what is going to be the next velocimune like super platform that regeneron is leading the way in 10 years from now and you got to make those investments along the way now and start planting those seeds. And so that was a lot of motivated kind of my early thinking was what are those areas we need to start, you know, planting seeds into so we can wake up in 2023 and be a real player in kind of a new field beyond antibodies. Yeah. Is it the is it the same team uh, on the buy and sell side? Uh, at Regeneron and, and, and uh, is, is it typical for like the, the same team to work on, uh, on buy and sell side transactions? Well, I mean, it's atypical for companies to even do both of those. I mean, big pharma for sure does, you know, divestitures, right. Cleaning the portfolio. We've shelved this program and I don't have a lot of visibility into how they organize that. I believe some, most of those guys have um, dedicated groups that are just out there shopping the, you know, garage sale stuff they don't want anymore yeah um so the way we do it at regeneron um which was kind of how i learned it at genentech frankly and maybe why we do it this way is we have one team that kind of does everything we do the scouting we do the due diligence we do the negotiations you know we do the internal strategy and part of it is just to have that continuity throughout the process so you don't lose stuff when you're passing the baton from kind of one you know silo to the next um, and part of it is necessity just because we're a lean and mean company. We, we can't afford to have 50 people in business development and have 10 scouts and 10 due diligence leads. So that's atypical. You know, most of our bigger peers, um, you know, are more siloed and expert in how they organize the BD teams. When it comes to turning your innovations into clinical realities, the first step is transforming your process. On the Business of Biotech podcast, we bring Emerging Biotech's weekly insights to advance their pipelines, from funding to regulatory and other need-to-know topics. The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics. Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash emerging biotech. So you talked about, uh, like on the buy side, you talked about pipeline, like longer term pipeline development and asset acquisition and making sure that you've got, you know, stuff to work on the next, the next big thing, 10 years down the road. Um, but we know in, in biopharma that pipelines, um, you know, they, they, they turn over, um, assets come and assets go. Um, as that happens, sort of the nor- normal cyclical playing out of of the science and the clinical trials and the money that dictates sort of what assets remain in the pipeline and and, and what don't. Um, what else creates like a, a, I guess a catalyst for you to go out on on the buy side to go to go out and and hunt? Like I'm, I'm just looking 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 for I guess like other indicators of uh you know of, of a of a of partnership necessity, or or by necessity. Yeah, I mean, well, necessity is an interesting word. I mean, that's kind of where I was going to go with the answer. I mean, sometimes deals are motivated by necessity, right? There is a gap 
or there is a, you know, a revenue goal, or there's a therapeutic area leadership, whatever, right? And you're trying to get somewhere. And in order to get there, there's a necessity, you know, to acquire something because the internal stuff are perceived necessity, right? And that motivates a lot of, you know, deal making for sure. Um, that is not really how we organize ourselves and even run the company in a grander sense. Um, and, you know, we don't really have long-term five-year financial goals or pipeline goals. I mean, Regeneron's strategy is follow the science. And we kind of really mean that in the sense that we invent a lot of drugs. We don't even know which ones are going to really work. We look at the data. We decide which ones to invest in, not based on some grand overarching therapeutic area strategy. It's just this drug looks like it's going to work and help the most people. So let's do that one. You know, it, it's really not this big top-down master plan. It is purely let's look at data together and figure out what those data tell us to do, yeah. which has us running in all kinds of crazy directions. And it's difficult to manage a company that way. But you know, you got to credit to our leadership over the years; they've done a, a pretty impressive job. Um, so, what does motivate our our deal making is a little less about necessity. It's kind of more about like you know being opportunistic and looking at what is it that we are doing maybe better than the rest of the world. Like as an example, you know, five years ago, maybe it was eight years ago, I can't remember now, uh, we made this decision to invest in a dramatic way in human genetic sequencing. And the vision was like, let's not dabble. We want Regeneron to be the number one place in the world in terms of, you know, numbers of samples, quality of data, access to patient data, and let's make the greatest discoveries based on large-scale human genome sequencing. And we've done that. You know, I don't know, we're number one, number two, wherever we are. I mean, it's like we're at the top of the world now. Mm -hmm. So some of the deal-making stuff comes from, okay, now that we're there, we have this resource, this asset, this capability, can we be opportunistic and think about how do we leverage that? And that led us into things like gene editing and RNAi as modalities to drug some of these novel targets that come out of that. You know, it led to you know a lot of conversations. We had we did one transaction with AstraZeneca as an example to discover you know small molecules against a novel target. How do we take advantage of this unique you know, these genetic targets and turn them into drugs through interesting collaborations? So it's kind of this necessity versus opportunism, um, which we end up playing a lot more in this kind of opportunistic mindset than a lot of our peers do. Do you find yourself uh, constantly being courted? Like, are, are you are you like constantly being courted by companies who want to offload assets or partner or or or, or be acquired wholesale? You know, it's interesting. Yes. But I, you know, I don't know how that compares to, you know, my peers at Amgen or J&J. Sometimes I wonder they probably get 10 times as much as we do. Yeah. I mean, Regeneron has a reputation and like rightly earned. We're not out there like shopping and buying other people's stuff. That's not, you know, we don't sit here and say we have an aspiration for our pipeline to be, you know, 55% sourced through external innovation, which a lot of other CEOs say, you know, with pride, that's like, that is a good badge of honor. Look how good we are of accessing external innovation. You know, we're kind of the opposite. If you listen to, you know, Len and George talk, it's homegrown assets. And we're very proud of what we've generated. So, you know, we have this reputation and in practice, like we're not out there shopping much and buying much and people know that. So, you know, we get not I mean, people approach us for sure, but I'm sure it's nowhere near what we would get if we were big spenders like, uh, you know, the Gileads and Celgenes used to be. Yeah. 
Yeah. When, um, when you do enter into uh, a partnership agreement, I, w- I want to talk about some some nuts and bolts, maybe some mechanics. Like what what is that? And again, I know you know as we've ascertained, there's uh, there are plenty of different recipes, plenty of different scenarios. Uh, but what are some of the I guess basic kind of bolted down contractual, you know, partnership contractual um, elements that are common? I mean. <laughs> Semantics is like, I find that to be kind of sometimes frustrating when we talk about these deals. Is this a out licensing, in licensing? Is this a collaboration? You know, what is this thing? So I tend to try to not use that type of verbiage because like, you know, that, that's not a great descriptor for what's really going on. Some of them are kind of loaded terms, I find, you know, so we were talking the other day with some of our senior R&D guys and we're saying, hey, we're thinking about an out licensing deal for Project X. And people, oh, out-licensing deal? No, what are you talking about? You know, no, no, no. We want to be involved in that program. Don't out-license it. I'm like, no, no, no. That's not what I meant. You know, I meant we're going to find a partner who we're going to grant a license to, to conduct certain activities, you know, blah, blah, Just relax, you know? Yeah. So these are, these are kind of, you know, loaded terms. That's why I, I try not to use them or at least encourage people to think a little bit more sophisticated, you know, Lee, about um, what's really going on. So like, for example, like when I look at these deals, um, and this is technical stuff. And that's why it's hard for like lay people and you can't even see that sometimes these deals aren't even made public because a lot of these contracts are redacted or people aren't going to take the time to download a you know filed you know, transaction agreement from some 10Q. But the things that I think really matter that kind of you know put these transactions into different categories and different buckets, it it really boils down to, you know, which party in that transaction has the contractual obligation, meaning if they don't do it, they're going to get sued, to do stuff? Who has to use commercially reasonable efforts to develop and commercialize the drug, right? That that one party will be assigned that obligation, right? And that is the lead party in the deal, right? Whether that's an in-license, out-license, because what licensing means, right? Licensing just means I wrote down on this piece of paper, you're allowed to do activity A, B, and C, and I won't sue you. Mm-hmm. And these are the activities I'm licensing you to do that I'm not going to sue you over, okay? Yeah. And and there's licenses that go in every direction because parties are all doing different things and you need these licenses to do things. So I don't even really look at that so much as the license grants. To me, it's who has the obligation contractually to do things, right? To devote resources, to be diligent, to execute stuff. Like that's really important. The other is decision-making, right? The governance, right? It's like at the end of the day, everyone says, well, we're going to sit down and we're going to agree on what to do, you know, but always, I mean, maybe one out of a hundred times, you know, there's an exception, but 99 out of a hundred, one party at the end of the day, get to decide what to do. If there's a dispute over the budget, there's a dispute over a plan, you know, you escalate it, whatever, someone ends up deciding. You can't function without, you can't really live with this stalemate. Sometimes you see deals with that, but again, it's weird and it's very rare. Um, and so that, you know, really, I, I look at that, okay? Who, who really is the final, final say at the end of the day? You know, that really matters a lot to me in terms of, um, you know, what the deal is, right? Um, and then it's just, is there, are there even in the last bucket is like, are there even ongoing activities by the seller, right? Because the seller sometimes is like, hey, here's a license to my patent, right? Run with it. You guys don't need us anymore. You know, you know how to synthesize this thing. You know how to conjugate this thing. I'm, I'm doing nothing. 
You know, I just am giving you, I'm just collecting a check. And, you know, that, that to me matters in terms of, is this really a collaboration, right? The word collaboration gets thrown around a lot, but to me, what collaboration means is the seller is actually doing stuff of real importance and criticality to the project. And that's not always the case, right? Because when we want to do a collaboration, then we need to really look hard at the people, you know, who are, who's going to be doing the work? What's their track record? Do they have the resources? Do they have the aligned vision or they got 50 other things they want to be doing? Are they motivated? You know, but if it's not a collaboration because they're not doing anything, then that stuff doesn't matter. Right. It just then it's about like, how good is the technology? What kind of deal are we getting? Are there other risks? What's, you know, blah, blah, blah. So like those three, I guess, I don't know, dimensions to me, uh, you know, if you study a deal and you think about it that way, it's a much more, you know, clear way to think about what is this, what's really going on in this deal. Yeah. Yeah. How much foresight do you apply? Like you talk about collaboration and and what collaboration truly means. And, and if, and if the, if the seller isn't, Really, really, really collaborating. Is, is that a, a potential pitfall where you can find yourself in a bad deal? Like, in, in other words, like, you know, there, there's a intended, obvious, obviously an intended outcome to this partnership, this collaboration. And should, should we go commercial? You know, should there be a ton of money to be made on this collaboration? But, you know, the collaboration isn't a truly collaboration. Like, does that, does that sit wrong? No, I don't think so. I think a lot of it, you know, where things get screwed up is um, misaligned expectations, like in so many things in life. You know, people enter into these deals thinking it's going to go one way. And we thought we had this agreement at the beginning that this is how it's going to all work out. And it turns out like, oh, no, no, actually, I had a very different intention. I, I never intended for you guys to play a big role here. We were always going to lead this particular activity. And when you get that kind of misalignment of what people thought they were either buying or getting in return and what they actually get, like that's when the friction really starts happening. And and that's something I see all the time, you know, that doesn't get enough attention time. It's just like, let's just get managements together. Let's just go through this somewhat mundane activity of why are we doing this? Can we all just be on the same page? What are we trying to achieve? You know, because sometimes you just you start running. You do the deal and you run into it and you find out, wait, we weren't even really on the same page all along. Yeah. You know, so that that's a big one for sure. It's just the, the misalignment of you know expectations more than anything. Well, uh, how involved are you like sort of po- post contractually? How how involved do you remain in collaborative, you know, <laughs> whatever word you want to ascribe to it, right? Strategic yeah. collaborations or partnerships or whatever. Not very much. I mean, like most groups, we have a dedicated function. It's like a full-time job is just to make sure these collaborations work well and we're communicating and everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing and resolving dispute. I mean, that really is a full-time job and takes a dedicated set of expertise. You know, having said that, you know, these, these deals are, you know, living things, you know, things change, people change, data emerges. We want to do this. So we never contemplated, you know, that this would ever happen. You know, good, sometimes good, sometimes bad. You want to expand. You need to, you know, shut down. So it's it, that that was one interesting learning for me, you know, just in my career is just you do these deals and they they never stop evolving and, you know, living. And so in some ways, you know, it, it's when those moments happen, when it's like, hey, we need to pivot. We need to re- reassess this where, you know, I or my team will get back involved and try to think about how to revise the deal, how to improve the deal, you know. What, what what have those experiences taught you about 
the actual business development part of it, like the, the way earlier stage, how, how have those experiences sort of formed up or shaped your approach, um, you know, pre-deal? Pre yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like what, yeah, what, yeah. what, are, yeah, what, are, what are you looking for? What have, what have you learned to look for or to, to be on the lookout for? Well, I mean, when, when you're doing these deals and certainly in my early days, um, I had this strong tendency and there's always this tendency as a deal maker to try to think about, you know, when you're sitting down writing these contracts, what are all these different scenarios? What could happen? And how do we contemplate that? How do we solve for that? You know, what if, you know, in, you know, these corner cases, like that terminology gets used all the time in deal making. Oh, this is a corner case. Stop solving for the corner case. And, um, well, for, for those of us who, who aren't dealmakers, describe a corner case. What, what, I don't even know where the heck that terminology comes. I think it's a consulting <laughs> term. But like what it means is like, I guess, if you think about a box of possible outcomes, like it's way in the corner. Like it's highly unlikely to ever occur. Yeah. That's what it okay. means. Right. Yeah. It's funny because I hear that's thrown around so often. I assume that everybody just uses that yeah. word all the time in their everyday life. <laughs> I, I make no assumptions. <laughs> no, no I, I'm sure some consultant invented that word once upon a time. So we'll blame McKinsey or, or whoever, BCG for that. Right. But um, my point is there's this tendency often in deal making to try to solve for every eventuality, every corner case, whatever, which great, fantastic. If you can try to do that, like great, it paves the way in the future. But what I've learned, you know, to your question is like, that's impossible. And it's a waste of time. And in, in many ways, it's counterproductive to kind of getting the deal done in the first place, you know, because these deals have a cadence, they have a momentum, they have an energy. And just like anyone who's done deals, buying a house or whatever, you know, time is your enemy, right? People lose interest, they get distracted, other things, you know, look interesting to them. So when you spend, you know, nine months trying to solve every possible little scenario, which none of them are going to likely happen, the deal may not happen in the first place. So trying to get more comfortable with some of that ambiguity and leaving things a bit open, knowing that we're going to have to come back together anyway to renegotiate and agree on stuff. That's been a kind of, I think, an evolution in my approach and thinking as a BD person is just maybe we don't need to solve everything right now. You know, we'll take some risk, right? We'll take some risk knowing that we might get some suboptimal solution later, right? Because as a buyer, that's when you have the leverage. Hey, you want my big check? You know, agree to all my provisions now. It's like, well, all right, I'm willing to take the risk that I'm going to get a worse deal on this future unknown point, but that's okay. You know, we'll solve it, you know? Yeah. So just that mindset has changed for me. Who do you, who do you want at the table? Like just from a per I guess a persona or titles perspective. Who who do you want at the table to really do the due diligence that you expect of yourself when you're exploring a deal? So specifically around the due diligence piece of it. Well, yeah, I'll maybe walk us through the progression. You know what I mean? Like when you when you first engage, when, when you engage in conversation, uh, you know, a, at all, like with with a company that you're interested in in partnering with. Um, and, I, and again, I'm sure that there are several different permutations, but but generally, like, who do you want at the table? Well, and that, and that, like I said, that that might change as you go down the line, right? You're like, yeah, you get yeah, to yeah. a point where you, you want to talk to some like lead scientists, maybe, I don't know, but like walk us through sort of that progression of who's involved and who who who's involved in an ideal new had Husseini situation. Yeah, I mean. I don't know who coined this, but it, it's apropos and a lot of people use this. This kind of want, find, get is like the 
you know, rubric that, you know, all BD groups do, right? What do we want? The strategy, the find, the sourcing, the diligence, the get, the transaction piece of it. Mm-hmm. The, the hardest part and what I spend most of my time and energy doing and the most important part is the want, right? It's the internal conversations of like, what are we even doing and why are we doing it? And especially at Regeneron, where we don't have these master strategies and goals, and we need this many phase three products and this much revenue. It's purely opportunistic. It's um, what are we even doing? And so to your question of like, who do I want to need at the, at the party for that part of the process? It's a champion. It's an influential person that can help me and my team like drive alignment of, yeah, this is what we want and we really mean it. We're serious, right? Because what happens a lot of times in deal making, it's like, you know, you're half serious and that's the worst thing possible. You, you run down the, the path with only half conviction and you change your mind. You don't know why you're doing it in the first place. And it's a disaster. The other side's pissed off. You wasted their time. They could have been doing another deal. You know, so avoiding that to me is like goal number one. You know, what are we doing? Let's be damn sure we know exactly what we're doing and why. And we all love it. And we're all going to be pissed if we don't. If we don't get this deal, we're going to be really sad. Right. So how do we find those kinds of opportunities? So finding a senior R&D person, that's who it is, is in Regeneron. Those are the influential people. It's not going to be the you know, commercial director that says we have to do this. It's some leader in R&D that says, I believe in this science. This is game-changing stuff. And the team is really, really good on the other side. That's who I want there. Yeah. You know, the diligence piece is fairly straightforward, right? There's a lot of people in the industry that kind of know what they're doing and been there, done that, developed drugs. So if you run a good process there, you know, you're probably going to discover and find out what's there. I'm not too worried about the diligence piece. And then the transaction piece, um, I think the key element there, honestly, is like decision makers, because in the moment, you know, you have to make these tough calls about, am I going to give on this point or, you know, what matters, Right. And who has that level of judgment, who has that level of seniority and decision making authority? Sometimes you negotiate with people that are kind of go betweens, which is I can't agree to this. I can't agree to this. I need to go check with my management and you can't get anything done in that in that kind of situation. So you need empowered people that have the judgment and the authority to kind of sit there. And, you know, sometimes there's a deal point that's so big, like, hey, we're going to, you know, add a hundred million dollars. Okay. I can't agree to that. I got to go back to, you know, executive team or whatever, but having somebody that can be a real decision maker at the table, Hey, we can agree to this. You know, if we come to a solution, like the answer is yes. Right. Having that kind of a partner or, you know, on our side that can do that, I think is critical. Yeah. Um, we're, we're running short on time here, Nuad. I, I just, I just looked at the, at the, uh, at the clock and I was, I was shocked at how much, <laughs> how much time we spent talking already. Uh, and I feel like we could go on and on and on. Uh, but I, I so I, I have a few more questions for you. I just want to uh, wrap things up here. Um, so one of them would be advice, you know, the majority of our, our audience is new and emerging leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies. Um, you know, many of whom, uh, perhaps have not experienced, uh, any opportunity at, at partnership or collaboration. Um, so what advice would you have? I guess, you know, high level advice would you have for leaders of new biopharma companies who are either, you know, dabbling in or perhaps even being approached? Um, what's your advice for them heading into a potential discussion around partnership? Um, well, one thing I would say is just kind of, you know, self-awareness, right? And just having a very objective 
try as much as you can. It's hard, especially for kind of founders that think what they're working on is the greatest thing in the world. And it's going to, and you have to be a cheerleader and a fundraiser. And that's kind of part and parcel for emerging biotech CEO, right? You don't take that job unless you're in that kind of cheerleader optimist kind of mindset. But when it comes to kind of deal making, I think, you know, you need to kind of check some of that at the door and just have this honest assessment, because sometimes that's right. Sometimes you really are working on something that is, you know, in the top 10 percentile of stuff that buyers want. And and if that's the case, you know, it's going to be a different experience and a different process and maybe different answer to your question in terms of like what to do. But in the other 90 percent of the case where you're on to something, it's good. But like, let's be honest, and you should be honest with yourself. It's not the top 10% crown jewels of what's out there. It's good. It's it's useful. But when you're in that kind of situation, you know, my advice would be like, just get started, right? Just get something going because, you know, you want to, these partnerships are, um, as I was talking about earlier, you know, they're they're living things. If it's going well, you know, they're going to expand. There's going to be more opportunity. So, you know, so one thing is like, try not to, you know, sell the farm and bundle all this stuff together. If you can, in your first deal, um, start small, you know, get to know a partner. You're going to find maybe some of these partners aren't the right fit for you guys in one way or shape or form. And so I guess that, that kind of boils down to that, you know, narrow scope for that first deal. You know, if you're in that other 10% category, okay, fine, go big. You know, you're going to do your big auction. You're going to find, you know, get Merck to pay you $10 billion for your ADCs or whatever. Um, but that's, a, I think, so that's the first thing is just figure out where you are on that spectrum and have that honest assessment. Yeah. Are there resources for uh, companies that may not have like good seasoned business development chops heading into conversations like this or opportunities like this? Like, is this, a, you know, I mean, I often I often have conversations with, uh, you know, CFOs for hire, for lack of a better term, right? Like contract. Are there, are there contract uh, brokers, negotiators in, in biotech that, that can help small companies? You know, I think a lot of these small companies just benefit a lot from, I mean, there's some tremendous uh, external legal counsel out there that are really, really sophisticated and good. And, you know, not just from the legal side, but they've done so many deals. They know the business aspects too. So I I think a senior, you know, executive, a CEO or whoever partnering with one of the, you know, top law firms that does a lot of these deals, that can go a long, long way. You don't necessarily need to have, you know, a BD person there because with that legal expertise, what they need is guidance from the business. You know, what are you guys trying to achieve, CEO? What are your goals here? Help me understand what you, you want out of this deal. And I can kind of get that for you. Um, you know, so the, the BD person, um, obviously is, is instrumental in terms of like building these relationships to begin with, right. And trying to, you know, pitch the story and build connections and build credibility, you know, all that's important for these small companies. But if you're asking like, Hey, I'm already past that. And I'm at the moment where I just need to get a deal done and get a good deal done. Well, uh, I don't know that you need to go hire like a BD for higher negotiator. I think you can hire a top legal firm and then have the CEO just partner with that, you know, uh, attorney to work out the deal. You mentioned earlier the uh, scenario where, you know, uh, maybe a founder has an emotional attachment 
to his his molecule or his project, his technology. Um, you know, there, there's that emotion. You also mentioned earlier that you want to get involved on projects where there's uh, energy and momentum and excitement on, on your team. And you, you said, you know, I I, I want I want to be involved in deals where we're going to be sad if if we lose them. You're talking about emotions. This is a very basic and fundamental question, but. How do you what what how do you do this? What advice do you have for for folks to um I guess shelve emotion when necessary in deal making? Like you're you're you you strike me as an you know you're you're energetic, you're animated. Like when you get we get on a roll with uh in, in, in this subject matter, you're energetic and animated, like there's there's passion there. I imagine there are times where you need to set that aside before you step through the door. What, what do you do to just kind of chill out and, and do business? Uh, you know, it's funny. A lot of people, you know, kind of say something different than what you just said. They kind of look at me as very cool, calm, like almost to a fault. Like they don't know how to read me. You know, I get that kind oh, of. Oh, the first time, uh, full disclosure, the first time I talked to you, you know, as I said, Alan was adamant that I spend time with you. And the first time I talked to you, I was like, you know, I don't know. This guy seems like he's, I think you were walking like on the streets of New York when I, when I was talking. Oh, I was coming A bit preoccupied, I know, but I was like, I don't know. But now, like now that we've kind of gotten into the role of this conversation, like I said, I see this, this passion and this animation. Um, so, so are you saying that generally you're just well, I would naturally... say my, my general demeanor, I think is like more of a cool, my emotions don't really come through in a lot of moments. Sometimes I get, you know, upset if I feel like someone's being unreasonable or unfair or deliberately trying to cause a problem. And sure. I'm like anybody, I'm a, I'm a human. Um, so anyway, I think part of it is just like, it comes kind of naturally to my personality. Uh, but I don't know that emotions are so bad i don't know that it's so critical that you check that at the door as long as you you know they're coming from the right place right that's where it's, a lot of it's about you know what is the motivation here is this a selfish motivation are you trying to you know look you know tough are you trying to look smart like that kind of stuff you know we don't need that but if you're trying to really get the best outcome for your company and you're just pat oh, that's fine welcome that you know so i try to look beyond that and it's just like what is the really what's driving this person you know what's driving us what is our motivations pure and noble you know, and like that, yeah. I can open a lot if that's the case. Yeah, very good. Um, you uh, are, are you not that I expect you to disclose this publicly on this podcast, but uh, do you have any immediate plans for Nuhad Husseini? Are you going to stay at Regeneron for a while? You're going to go lead your own lead your own biotech someday, become a become a CEO, a founder. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I think at the beginning of the discussion, we talked about when I came to Regeneron and my plan, you know, when I first got here, I thought I'd be here for like two or three years. I didn't think there was any chance I would still be at Regeneron. And my thought was, I'll go there and I'll end up going to some small biotech and rise up the ranks and, you know, be a CEO of a small biotech one day. That's kind of the natural evolution for a lot of people in my shoes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the way things have gone at Regeneron, just the growth of the company and the unique culture here and the unique opportunity to be creative and the kinds of like I was describing. If I was at a company where it was these are the four things, you know, and I was handed a playbook, you know, go get these four things. I, I would be bored by now, you know, but that's not this, you know, the job here is like, you have this blank canvas, you have this incredible, you know, substrate of R&D, and we have all kinds of challenges and opportunities. 
help us solve those in the creative way, you know, most creative way possible. So like as a deal maker, it's like, you know, dream come true. I'm kind of in, you know, in a playground here. So from that standpoint, it's, it's fun. You know, I'm not bored and I'm always challenged, which surprises me, you know, at this stage after doing this, you know, for over a decade in kind of the same job. Um, so I guess with that aspect in mind, like, yeah, I'm not eager to leave because this is a really rewarding and fun, you know, place to be. Um, you know, long term, you know, I could see myself, you know, in a in a senior role at a at a company. It's got to be the right situation. You know, I, I don't look at myself as like you know the true entrepreneur that's going to take some technology out of Columbia and bootstrap my way to a you know five million dollar seed round and you know build the first employees. Like that's not what gets me jazzed. I'm not a creator from scratch. You know, I like solving business problems and helping science move forward, right? Helping science move forward by finding the right, you know, financing sources and partnerships and complementary scientific expertise. Like that's what gets me going. How do I help, you know, see some science actually get to the end because of my ingenuity and creativity. And, you know, if I can, you know, if I can have a bigger impact on doing that, you know, and it feel like, hey, my impact is even bigger, you know, than I can have in my role at Regeneron and something like that came along. Yeah, I might be interested in doing that. But it's, um, again, it'd be, it'd be it'd be like not, it'd be kind of like how I ended up at Regeneron. Something would fall on my lap and it's like, this is the perfect set of circumstances. I can't say no to it. So it's possible. Yeah. Very good. Well, like I said, I didn't, I didn't expect you to tell me that you had imminent plans to to go do something else, but uh, I appreciate the transparency there. Um, this has been terrific. Like I, th- this has been a great getting to know you conversation. And I think you've also shared a ton of good insight just into the thought process, pro- thought processes around deal making. Um, I, 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 I thank you one for um, entertaining my often ill-formed questions. And I think I'd like to have you back on the pod sometime, um, sometime soon and and talk a little bit more strategically about some of the things that new and emerging biotechs can be taking advantage of in, in the market right now, or, um, you know, discussion around some of the market conditions that are impacting the decisions that they're making. Um, if, if, if you're game for that, but in the meantime, I think this is terrific. Like this is a super, super insightful conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Well, I appreciate you having me. Hopefully the audience thought it was interesting hearing a little bit about my <laughs> my my background and uh hopefully there's some good tidbits in there. But uh I'd be I'd be happy to come back on and uh, keep the conversation going down the road. That'd be fun. I appreciate it. Thanks, Newhead. All right, thank you. So that's Regeneron SVP and head of business development and corporate strategy, Newhad Husseini. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online and sponsored by Cytiva, whose support of new and emerging biopharma companies is on full display at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. If you like listening in on conversations with leaders like Newhad, subscribe to the Business of Biotech podcast and sign up for our newsletter at bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B. Also, be sure to leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>